down and listen to my story about a man named Jed. A poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food, and up through the ground come a bubbling crude. Oil, that is, black gold, Texas tea. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. The kinfolk said, Jed, move away from there. Said, California is the place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly Hills, that is, swimming pools, movie stars. A Beverly Hillbilly. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 16th day of December, 2007. I'd like to remind my listeners that all of the documentation for my episodes, as well as new articles and new videos, can be found from the homepage for this podcast www.corbettreport.com For a complete listing of the documentation for today's episode, sorted by time index, please go to my website and click on the Episodes tab, and under today's episode you'll find a link to the documentation. And now, without further ado, it's time for the real news. The propaganda for the latest UN man-made global warming hype started heating up relatively early this year with stories from foxnews.com entitled Woman Aborts Child to Help Save the Planet or a story from CBC News entitled Divorce Bad for the Environment, Researchers Say. But perhaps the largest piece of propaganda was this story out of the Australian AP entitled Tax Babies to Save Planet. This story was filed by Tamara McLean on December 10th, 2007. Couples who have more than two children should be charged a lifelong tax to offset their extra offspring's carbon dioxide emissions, a medical expert says. The report in an Australian medical journal called for parents to be charged $5,000 a head for every child after their second, and an annual tax of up to $800. And couples who were sterilized would be eligible for carbon credits under the controversial proposal. Perth specialist Professor Barry Walters was heavily critical of the $4,000 baby bonus, saying that paying new parents extra for ex- every extra baby f- fueled more children, more emissions, and greenhouse-unfriendly behavior. Instead, it should be replaced with a baby levy in the form of a carbon tax in line with the polluter-pays principle, he wrote in the latest Medical Journal of Australia. And in a not-so-coincidental related development from the UN Climate Conference in Bali, Delegates did indeed raise the specter of a global CO2 carbon tax. All that despite this letter, released on December 13, 2007, and signed by 100 climate scientists. The letter is entitled, Open Letter to the Secretary General of the United Nations. It is not possible to stop climate change, a natural phenomenon that has affected humanity throughout the ages. Geological archaeological, oral, and written histories all attest to the dramatic challenges posed to past societies from unanticipated changes in temperature, precipitation, winds, and other climactic variables. We therefore need to equip nations to become resilient to the full range of these natural phenomena by promoting economic growth and wealth generation. 
In stark contrast to the often repeated assertion that the science of climate change is settled, significant new peer-reviewed research has cast even more doubt on the hypothesis of dangerous human-caused global warming. But because IPCC working groups were generally instructed to consider work published only through May 2005, these important findings are not included in their reports, i.e. the IPCC assessment reports are already materially outdated. In other news this week, we have this report from ConsortiumNews.com, entitled Mobile Labs to Target Iraqis for Death. U.S. forces in Iraq soon will be equipped with high-tech equipment that will let them process an Iraqi's biometric data in minutes and help American soldiers decide whether they should execute the person or not, according to its inventor. A warfighter needs to know one of three things. Do I let him go? Keep him? Or shoot him on the spot? Pentagon's weapon designer Anne Duong told the Washington Post for a feature on how this 47-year-old former Vietnamese refugee and mother of four rose to become a top U.S. bomb maker. Though Duong is best known for designing high explosives used to destroy hardened targets, she also supervised the Joint Expeditionary Forensics Facilities Project, known as a lab in a box for analyzing biometric data, such as iris scans and fingerprints that have been collected on more than one million Iraqis. This is the 24th edition of the Corbett Report, and it's my unfortunate duty to report to you the latest rantings and ravings of the chicken littles of the world who would like to see an end to all global development. No, this time it's not man-made global warming why we should all be living in caves and wearing the latest in bearskin fashion. This time it's an entirely new threat, a dangerous threat, one that's going to send us back to the Stone Age. Let's listen to this short clip about the latest threat to humanity. In the future, things like driving cars and air travel period will be not something that the average person can afford, but something that's only available to the the super, super elite, the one-tenth of one percent. A graduate student came to see me and he said, tell me, will my grandchildren ever ride in an airplane? It it, it was a gripping question because the answer might very well be no. I would say air travel will substantially stop. This clip, I trust, is fairly representative of those available online on YouTube or Google Video these days. Regarding peak oil, a theory that the culmination of all oil production in the world is about to peak, and thus will go into inevitable, irreversible decline in the coming years and decades. This theory is especially popular these days, including among the anti-war crowd, among those who have figured out that the war on terror is just a way to promote hatred against the Muslims in order to promote wars in the Middle East, in order to secure oil deposits. What is less clear is how this is a fraud that was in fact created by the oil industry in order to artificially inflate prices. 
The wars in the Middle East are, as perceived, about oil to a large extent. However, not as a way of pumping the oil out, but as a way of keeping the oil from being pumped out of those countries that are being invaded. One way of doing this is, as in Iraq, to destabilize the country, creating factional partitions warring amongst each other to ensure that the oil supply is never stable and that prices thus will always go up as demand increases, but the supply is not being fed by fresh supplies of Middle Eastern oil. This is clearly seen in the run-up to the original Gulf War in which Saddam Hussein was not pumping too little oil, but in fact pumping too much oil which required a U.S.-led invasion to make sure that the oil could not be pumped out. And we all know what resulted with the oil-for-food scandal administered by the United Nations. But surely, one would argue, peak oil is not a political reality, but a geological reality. It's a scientific hypothesis. How could it possibly be a fraud? Well, for more on that, let's go to a researcher who will be familiar to regular listeners of the Corbett Report, Let's turn to Webster Tarpley from the 4th of July 2006 edition of Farther Down the Rabbit Hole with Paula Gloria, in which Webster Tarpley responds to a question about peak oil. I think the the short answer to that is peak oil is essentially a fraud. It's a monstrous propaganda fraud practiced on the world by the oil cartel itself with the help of the central banks and the banking community in general, because it is designed to create an atmosphere conducive to further rounds of genocidal austerity against the people of the world, and it is also a support operation for the dollar in its death agony. Now, for people who don't know the the details of this story, let me just summarize it. For the the, uh, Peakniks, the the supporters of peak oil, the group that we call the Peakniks, the Peakniks go back to their guru, who is a character called King Hubbard, who worked in the research department of Royal Dutch Shell in its American branch, Shell Oil. And back in the 1950s and 60s, he posited that he felt that U.S. oil production was going to peak around 1970, and that, that there would be a uh, peak in world oil production some 10 or 15 years after that. So that would more or less correspond to where we are now. Uh, except that it's a fraud. Uh, The question of U.S. oil production peaking in 1970, that is more or less what happened. But you also, it peaked, U.S. domestic drilling and oil production peaked around 1970. In other words, it reaches its maximum and after that declines. The problem you have with that is so many other things peak around 1970. The standard of living in this country peaked around 1970. Uh, production of things like steel or chemicals or a whole array of industrial uh, commodities and and products, physical economy, peaked because 1970 corresponds more or less to the collapse of the Bretton Woods monetary system in 1970, the only monetary system the world had had from 1944 to 1971. So we had peak oil in the United States, but we also had peak steel, peak standard of living, peak chemicals, peak this, peak that, you name it. It's not limited to oil, and that leads me to my other point. What we're dealing here with is the death agony of the U.S. dollar. We're dealing with the decline of a monetary system starting in about 1970, and we are now in the final phases of the death agony of the dollar. What you're dealing with is a crisis of political economy. It is a breakdown crisis of imperialism. It is a financial and economic collapse and catastrophe of the world economy. 
but it is not a geological fact. Nowhere in all of this is there any, any evidence that the theoretical production of oil in the world has to go down, or indeed is going down. Rather, what we seem to have is record high oil prices based on a glut of oil in the market. More oil than ever before in the markets, and the prices sky high. How can that happen? Through things called hedge funds. People may have been reading about the Pequot Fund lately. There's a big scandal around the Pequot Fund, front page New York Times, uh, a week ago Friday. This is a huge hedge fund. They're now about $2 trillion in U.S. hedge funds alone. These are those highly speculative, risky, adventurous funds that fly below the, they fly below the radar because they're not regulated. They have few investors. In, in the German election campaign last uh, year, in 2005, it was said by the Chancellor of Germany, Gerhard Schroeder, that if the price of oil is $70, 20 to $30 of that is pure hedge fund exploitation, pure speculation. The fact that these hedge funds are selling this oil thousands and thousands of times, buying it, selling it back and forth, thousands of cycles, before it ever gets to the market. So it's bad enough, of course, that we've got a heavily cartelized oligopoly. The oil cartel is not OPEC. OPEC is the uh, is the uh, scary uh, boogeyman oil cartel that they use to scare the people in the West. The real oil cartel is typified by ExxonMobil, Royal Dutch Shell. It used to be called the Seven Sisters. It's now down to four sisters or five sisters. It's c completely cartelized. And these people have simply decided that they're going to restrict production, that they're not going to build refineries, and therefore you're getting gouged at the tune of three to four dollars per gallon. And the result of that is that the American standard of living is now one-third of what it was in 1960. Our living standard has declined by two-thirds. To be sure, those are some extraordinary claims by Mr. Tarpley, and they do go against the grain of what is becoming the received wisdom of peak oil. Since his claim is that peak oil is in fact a crisis of the political economy and not a geological reality, then we are presented with an ideal way in which to interrogate this hypothesis of peak oil. Let's look at it from a scientific perspective. Is there any scientific basis for believing Mr. Tarpley's assertions? Well, the first place to go if you believe that peak oil is a geological reality is to this BBC article entitled, How Much Oil Do We Really Have? It's from Friday, 15th of July, 2005, and it speaks to the heart of this issue. This article questions the practice of estimating oil reserves, and it quotes Mr. Paul Horsnell of Barclays Capital, who says, Oil data is like paint thrown across a canvas. You get the broad outline of the situation. But even then, it's not just a Jackson Pollock painting. The paint actually moves of its own accord after it has been applied, says Mr. Horsnell. The article goes on to say, in part, quote, One of the major problems surrounding oil data is in reserves. These are the basins of crude oil that lie underground. They are either held by governments or the oil majors like BP, ExxonMobil, or Shell, or a combination of both. Many countries simply do not allow outsiders to audit the size of these fields. This is especially true of the major Middle East oil producers of OPEC and the countries of the former Soviet Union. Some believe that reserves stated by OPEC countries such as Kuwait and Saudi Arabia are not accurate. There are a lot of questions to answer over OPEC reserves, says Bruce Evers of Investec Bank. 
The quality of overall oil market data is poor, but with OPEC there remains considerable debate over the reliability of their reserve estimates. End quote. Now this article is evidently a whitewash in and of itself. It starts off by noting that the oil majors like BP, ExxonMobil, and Shell are major operators in the industry, but then only goes to target the OPEC oil cartel boogeyman, which Mr. Tarpley made the point of noting is the demon in the oil industry mythology, where of course the Western oil companies could never engage in such shady reserve estimate practices. But the report is notable because if you go to the BBC News page, and again, you can find the link from my website, www.corbettreport.com, there's an interesting sidebar about claimed OPEC oil reserves. It compares oil reserves in various countries as estimated in the 1970s with those oil reserves as estimated today. Kuwait, for instance, estimated in the 1970s that they had 64 billion barrels of oil in reserve, and today estimate 92 billion barrels. The United Arab Emirates estimated 34 billion, today estimate 92 billion. Iraq estimated 48 billion, and today estimates 100 billion. Saudi Arabia estimated 170 billion, today estimates 258 billion barrels of oil. What the report does make clear is that these reserve estimates are by no means scientific. In fact, they're very heavily political. OPEC rules, for instance, dictate that a country can only pump a percentage of its oil reserves, thus giving an incentive for countries to overestimate their reserves. Other such tinkering is common in the oil industry where information about competitors gives any company an obvious advantage. Reliable reports on oil reserves and other oil data, therefore, are very difficult to find. This creates quite a problem for estimating something like peak oil, are we anywhere near peak oil? It's a difficult answer if we don't know how much oil we even have. And as Dr. Michael Smith, the director of Energy Files, notes at the end of that BBC News report, quote, But there are many reasons about why it is impossible to measure oil. It's a liquid for a start. There are huge margins of error with oil data, and it has to be treated as such. It's the nature of the product. Thinking you can measure it to the eighth decimal point, well, it's just a waste of time, end quote. Another key scientific point in backing up Mr. Tarpley's claim against the Peakniks comes from the discovery, which happens on about a six-monthly basis, of huge oil fields, which are reported in the market media but not given much mainstream media coverage, thus reinforcing a false positive conviction that there are no huge oil discoveries anymore and that we have reached oil discovery culmination. This is easily dismissed by reports such as these, we have one from MarketWatch entitled Huge Potential Seen in Gulf of Mexico Oil Well from September 5, 2006, which reads in part, quote, A group led by Chevron Corp. on Tuesday raised expectations that it has tapped into what could be one of the nation's biggest oil discoveries in decades, releasing results from the long-awaited test of a Gulf of Mexico deepwater oil well. While Chevron only tested about 40% of the well's hydrocarbon pay zones, it has yielded an impressive 6,000 barrels of oil a day, implying it has favorable reservoir geology and good pressure features. Or about nine months later, this report from BBC News from the 18th of June 2007, entitled Huge Oil Field Discovery in Ghana. This report reads in part, quote, UK firm Tulo Oil has announced the discovery of 600 million barrels of light oil offshore from Ghana. 
Reserves in the mahogany exploration well were far greater than the 250 million barrels that the firm had earlier forecast, it said. Or a few months after that, this report from the New York Times from November 17, 2007, headlined, Brazil discovers an oil field can be a political tool. It reads in part, quote, With the price of oil hovering near $100 a barrel, the discovery of the biggest deepwater oil field off the southeastern coast has the potential to transform Brazil into a global energy powerhouse and to reshape the politics of this energy-starved continent. While Brazil's state oil company, Petrobras, has known of the field for more than a year, it only finished assessing its full potential in recent months. It announced on November 8th that the field held some 5 billion to 8 billion barrels of crude oil and natural gas. End quote. Of course, these are just a few isolated examples, but as I say, reports like this creep up in the media every several months and are expressly avoided in most debates on the issue of the reality or lack thereof of peak oil. And these stories just scratch the surface of what could in fact be a much, much bigger story. For that, we turn to another independent researcher named Lindsay Williams. Lindsay Williams was a Baptist minister serving as a chaplain on the oil pipelines in Alaska for the Alyeska Pipeline Company in the 1970s. Through Williams' unprecedented outsider look into the insider world of oil politics, he discovered what he believes to be one of the largest oil reserves in the world at a site called Gull Island on the northern slopes of Alaska. It's his assertion that this discovery has been covered up by the oil companies and the government working in complicity to artificially inflate oil prices. This is, an, again, an extremely interesting claim, and we'll listen to a couple of minutes from a speech that he made in promotion of his book, The Energy Non-Crisis. Let's listen to the clip of Lindsay Williams. I trust you are aware that we're being controlled in every area of our lives, even the toothbrush that you will use tonight to brush your teeth with. Otherwise, what you're going to hear for the next few moments' time could be very disturbing to you. So, here are the facts. There is as much crude oil on the north slope of Alaska as there is in Saudi Arabia. The governor of Alaska stated on the Mill Mayor TV show, Real Time, on March the 18th, 2005, there is potentially enough crude oil on the north slope of Alaska to supply the entire United States of America for 200 years. He's correct. Peak oil is a misnomer. It is an idea perpetrated by the powers that be for the purpose of deceiving the American public. Russia has just drilled some what they call super deep wells to the depth of 40,230 feet. Super deep wells, which they call Cola SG3, they have found massive amounts of oil. The world is nowhere near running out of crude oil. Gasoline at the gas pump could be less than $1.50 a gallon within the next one year here in the United States of America if only our president and vice president and our administration in Washington would be honest with the American people. There is enough natural gas 
on the North Slope of Alaska to supply the entire United States of America for over 200 years. If every other natural gas well in America were cut off tomorrow morning at the projected rate of increased consumption, Every 24 hours at Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, on the North Slope where the large oil field is, they pump back into the ground one billion cubic feet of natural gas that comes up with the oil. You did hear correctly. I did not say million. I said one billion cubic feet. And just in case you would like some details and would wish to follow further with what I'm saying to attempt to prove right or wrong, try this one. Contact someone you know that works on the North Slope of Alaska, or anyone that has any contact with anyone there, and ask them this. They are using 48 747 type jet aircraft engines in order to pump that eight, uh, a one billion cubic feet of natural gas back into the ground every 24 hours. If you want details, we can go as far as you'd like. Now, such an oil reserve as Lindsay Williams claims lies off the northern slopes of Alaska would, of course, throw a monkey wrench into the works of those seeking to convince us that we are rapidly consuming every last drop of oil on the planet. As would the information from this report, entitled The Myth of Peak Oil, filed on PrisonPlanet.com on October 12, 2005. It contains links to three separate internal confidential memos from Mobile, Chevron, and Texaco, which were obtained by the Foundation for Taxpayer and Consumer Rights. These internal memos show that the three major oil companies were conspiring to reduce oil refining capacity in the United States in the 1990s. Indeed, the internal Chevron memo states, quote, a senior energy analyst at the recent API convention warned that if the U.S. petroleum industry doesn't reduce its refining capacity, it will never see any substantial increase in refinery margins, end quote. So we have reports of giant oil reserves being discovered on a regular basis, reports of giant oil reserves being covered up in order to inflate prices, and internal memos from the oil companies stating that they will indeed reduce refining capacity in order to jack up prices. And then we see evidence of that every time there's a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. Gas prices suddenly shoot up as if there's been some major disruption in oil. And yet those prices never come back down after the situation has been resolved. Indeed, we've seen in recent months oil flirting with $100 a barrel, and reports from even a few months ago questioning the idea of $100 a barrel oil seem a bit naive today, with that becoming fast a reality. Yet none of this will serve to convince a peaknik of the wrongness of their theory. They would always point to the underlying hypothesis of their theory that as oil is a non-renewable resource, no matter how much there might be out there, or no matter how much might be out there that we don't know about yet, we will of course inevitably start using up the last drops of oil sooner or later. Well, what if that theory is wrong? Think back a moment to your school education and ask yourself this. What is oil and where does it come from? If you were trained in the traditional Western science of petrochemical research, you would understand oil to be a substance which is formed when organic matter, such as decaying dinosaur bones and decaying leaves, are trapped under geological strata and compressed, thus forming pools of hydrocarbons trapped under the surface. 
You might be surprised to learn that this is indeed not the only scientific theory about the origins of petrochemicals, and that in fact, oil might be a renewable resource. For more on this intriguing hypothesis, let's go to a highly unlikely source, a mainstream media debate. On November 1st, 2005, CNBC aired this report on the idea of peak oil versus the idea of deep oil. Let's turn to a clip to listen to this debate. In studio, guest host Brian Westberg, chief investment strategist at Claymore Advisors. Crude below $60 a barrel for the first time in three months. Warm weather sapping demand for heating oil, but the debate over how much black gold exists continues to rage on. In Houston, Matt Simmons, CEO of Simmons & Company International, author of Twilight in the Desert, the coming Saudi oil shock in the world economy. He says the booming oil days are over. In San Diego, Craig Smith, CEO of Swiss America Trading, author of Black Gold Stranglehold, he says there's plenty of oil. We just have to dig deeper. All right. Let's start uh, with the, the uh, you know, the Craig, the argument that there's plenty of gold, but we just have to dig deeper, uh, plenty, of, plenty of oil. Um, well, Mark, are you talking about finding new oil, or are you talking about improving the technology to recover more out of the fields? Well, I think both, Mark. I mean, if you look at the Department of Energy's Energy Information Administration, we currently have 1.28 trillion barrels of proven reserves, which are the highest in our history, and if we are in fact de depleting the giant oil wells, and how come the reserves are continuing to increase? I think with technology and new finds, especially off the continental shelves, shelves and in, in the Gulf, uh, like the Thunder Horse rigs or, or the Atlantis project, I just don't buy the theory that we're running out of oil. Matt Simmons, what do you say? Uh, we're not running out of oil. The risk of running out of oil is minuscule, but the risk that we're peaking is a very real threat. And until we have better data, we can have a theological debate for the next two or three years. Uh, but what we really need to do is, is, is demand field-by-field field quarterly production statistics, and then we can start actually looking at real numbers. Will you concede that improvements in technology could delay the peak for quite some time? No, I actually think that the, uh, what we've done with technology has allowed oil to be pulled out of the ground at far faster rates. It's created decline curves that we basically were, that weren't literally possible 10 or 15 years ago. It's also allowed the industry to do riskier projects, and the riskier projects sometimes don't work very well. There are two deep water projects in the Gulf of Mexico, for instance, uh, Front Runner and and uh, Marco Polo. Uh, that basically, within months of coming on stream, both watered up. Uh, Marco Polo is now down to 10 percent of what it was supposed to be at a year ago. So I think a lot of the technology actually made things harder to do, not easier. Uh, but, but I think at the same token, you have to look at projects like Atlantis that are going to be online producing 150,000 barrels a day, and also Thunder Horse, which is a billion-barrel rig. I mean, I asked a simple question, Matt, of why would the oil companies be committing $55 billion to harvesting the Gulf if, in fact, there's not enough oil there? I mean, it just wouldn't make sense mathematically. Well, the industry is struggling right now to, to try to maintain at best flat production, and so I think that if there's a project that can be done, they're going to tackle it. The problem is we just don't have the abundant inventory of projects to do that we had 10 years ago. Uh, Mr. Smith, this is Brian Westbury. Uh, good morning. Good morning. You, you have an interesting theory that basically says oil is not uh, decaying dinosaurs or at bends of rivers where leaves piled up and decayed. 
uh, that basically oil is deep in the crust, that it comes out as the earth spins. Doesn't that mean that if I just dig, dig deep enough, I'm going to find all the oil I want? Well, in theory, that's, that's correct. And I think that the Russians have proven this beyond any, any question. I mean, if you look at the Vietso-Petro project between Vietnam and Russia, they drilled right through crystalline basement and have found wells like White Tiger or Black Lion that are producing 280,000 barrels a day. Soon Black Lion will be producing 200,000 uh, 200, barrels a day. I mean, clearly, we've got a lot of oil out there, and yeah. I think we need to embrace new technology to go get some of this well, oil. Well, that, that's great. And, Mr. Simmons, then, uh, let, me, let me come back to you. Uh, uh, hundreds of years ago, Thomas Malthus uh, predicted that the population of the Earth would outgrow its, our ability to grow food. Clearly, technology uh, made him dead wrong. Uh, it, it was just simply a horrible forecast. Isn't it the case that, uh, that, that that's likely to happen here in the energy industry as well? Uh, it'll, you know, history will finally prove one, of the, one way or the other, but I think the higher we actually have demand, the faster we're going to actually hit peak oil. And unfortunately, too many areas now are in irreversible decline. You know, ten years ago, most experts thought the North Sea wouldn't approach peak oil until 2010, and by 2000 would be producing about seven and a half million barrels a day. The reality is that it peaked in 1999 and is already off 30, 35%. That's using every scrap of technology we know about. But logicians, you know, for years have talked about the fallacy of composition. You know, just because the Saudi oil fields may be depleting doesn't mean that the world's supply of oil is diminishing. And I think we're starting to prove that over and over again, whether it be in the Niger Delta or whether it be in the Trinidad Basin or the Taiwan Basin. I think that America needs to lead the charge in embracing the technology and getting out there and finding these proven reserves that are out there, bringing them to market, and bringing this price into a reasonable area where we can continue to see the globalization of growth or the, the synchronization of global growth that we have experienced for the last 20 years. This, this whole idea of 1972, MIT did a study, Limits, limits to Growth, right. and 30 years later, Guess what? None of their predictions came true. All of these were running out predictions, and the world's coming to an end have never proven out, and I don't think this time it's going to prove out again. Great, you, sure. know, you know, interestingly enough, I actually finally read Limits to Growth in, the, in 2000, and it was amazing. I'd heard so many people talk about this book that warned we were going to run out of everything. What they were warning about is running out of things in 2050 to 2070, so I think the jury's still out on yeah, where the limits of growth are. Well, the initial... Track. But, but, but hold on there for a second, because I actually have an original copy of that book, and I've read it. And they, 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 yes, they didn't say we would run out of anything till 2050, but they said that we would have super spikes in prices and that there would be starving people by the late 1980s, That's early correct. 1990s. That's correct. And at 30 years, which would be 2003, we would clearly have depleted a majority of the oil, and there would be huge implications in the economies throughout mm -hmm. the world. The, the problem is, if you believe that we are getting oil from decaying dinosaurs and, and debris from the forest, then obviously there's only a finite supply. We don't embrace that. We believe that the earth is creating oil as we speak, and that with technological advances and the ability to put human uh, resources together with natural resources and the wonderful capital markets we have here in America, we can get all the oil we need for dozens, if not hundreds of years to come. What the talking head refers to in that report is abiotic oil, also known as the theory of abiogenic petroleum origin. As Wikipedia will tell you, 
The abiogenic theory of oil postulates that petroleum might be carbon-bearing fluids coming from the interior of the Earth, perhaps dating to the formation of the Earth itself, which migrate their way towards the mantle. Again, the Wikipedia entry notes some of the sources to check for the development of this theory, uh, most of them being Russian scientists working in the 1950s and 1960s who went on to discover masses of oil in Siberia and other places which were originally thought to be oil barren. But then the Wikipedia article notes that most Western scientists consider the biogenic theory of oil or the idea that it is crushed up dinosaur bones and decaying plant leaves uh, trapped under the surface of the earth as scientifically proven. And as we all know, Wikipedia is right about everything. Um, if you want to research a little bit more into this, you might take a look at a Wall Street Journal article which briefly flirted with the idea of the abiogenic theory of oil in an article headlined, Odd Reservoir Off Louisiana Prods Oil Experts to Seek a Deeper Meaning. And that report was filed in 1999 and reads in part, quote, Something mysterious is going on at Eugene Island 330. Production at the oil field, deep in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Louisiana, was supposed to have declined years ago. And for a while it behaved like any normal field. Following its 1973 discovery, Eugene Island 330's output peaked at about 15,000 barrels a day. By 1989, production had slowed to about 4,000 barrels a day. Then suddenly, some say almost inexplicably, Eugene Island's fortunes reversed. The field, operated by Penn's Energy Co., is now producing 13,000 barrels a day, and probable reserves have rocketed to more than 400 million barrels from 60 million. Stranger still, scientists studying the field say the crude coming out of the pipe is of a geological age quite different from the oil that gushed ten years ago. All of which has led some scientists to a radical theory. Eugene Island is rapidly refilling itself, perhaps from some continuous source miles below the Earth's surface. That, they say, raises the tantalizing possibility that oil may not be the limited resource it is assumed to be. End quote. And further scientific evidence that complex hydrocarbons are not necessarily formed from decaying organic life comes from the European Space Agency, which put out a report in 2005 that Titan, Saturn's largest moon, has an intriguing feature on its south pole as revealed by the Cassini spacecraft, which was able to identify a, a dark feature which may in fact represent a lake of liquid hydrocarbons on the surface of that moon. Now, all of this intriguing scientific evidence indicates that, in fact, oil might be something quite different than what big oil would like us to believe. And the fact that big oil would lie in order to preserve its money and power perhaps would come as a surprise to few. But this all leads us back to a much larger question. Is this simply a scheme by the oil companies to artificially inflate prices? Or is there something else, another ideology behind this scheme? Let's turn back to that clip of Webster Tarpley from the July 4, 2006 edition of Farther Down the Rabbit Hole, in which he expounds on his theory that peak oil is a fraud. Now, just in terms of the political uses of this, uh, viewers may have noticed, in Al Gore's interview with Larry King, and I'm sure in many other interviews, Gore is now doing a, a series of interviews around his Malthusian apocalypse Can you movie. Malthusian? I'll get to Malthus in just okay. a minute. But uh, Gore 
told uh, Larry King that he believes in peak oil. And this shows how very radical, how very left, how very progressive it is to believe in peak oil. Al Gore, the mouthpiece of Wall Street, and the close friend of Prince Charles and the British royal family, a real man of the people, a real guy out in the streets fighting for the common man, has told us that peak oil is there. That same week, George Soros, one of the controllers of the Democratic Party, a real finance oligarch, parasite, exploiter, and looter of the entire world, Soros recommends more austerity for the United States population. The living standard here has got to go down even further. They've taken one-third of your standard of living over the past 40 years, and Soros now wants more. How very progressive, how very, how very avant-garde they all are. And I think this, this essentially shows what's going on here. If you believe that the death agony of the dollar is a crisis of political economy, then you're going to blame the people who actually carried that out. Who's responsible? Robert Rubin, Felix Rohatton, George Soros, Warren Buffett, the huge financiers, George Schultz, who speaks for a whole coterie of financiers, the people who pick Bush, pick Cheney, pick the Balkans, pick the current cabinet, and so forth. You're going to say, if there's a depression, who should pay for it? The finance oligarch should pay for it. Let's tax their $500 trillion of derivatives. Let's, let's hit them with a, a nice uh, tax increase. For example, we just had Warren Buffett give Bill Gates almost $40 billion. That is a scandal. This system is wrong if, if a parasite like Buffett can give the monopolist Gates $40 billion. We could, if we could expropriate that money, we could fund a single-payer national health care system for the whole country for the best part of a year. And instead now, Bill and Melinda are going to get to make the decisions, and then they'll be fawned on by all the anchor people at CNN who think it's so wonderful that these two rich uh, exploiters have been able to, to get together. So if you believe it's a crisis of political economy, you're going to say, let's take that out of the hide who inflicted all of this on the world. Political economy. Political Geo economy. Geo geological reality. The geological, it's not a geological reality. We it's whole thing. It's a glut. You've got a glut. There's no shortage of oil. You've just got hedge funds coming in there with $2 trillion. And this is the one sure bet is that it's going to go up, they think, because they've got this, this uh, oligopoly control of production and indeed of refineries. If you believe it's a geological crisis, the picture shifts radically. In that case, you are responsible with your uh, imprint, right? Your um, uh, wasting of oil and whatever else it is. And therefore, if it's a geological phenomenon, then everybody is responsible and everybody has to undergo genocidal austerity. Now, we're at the point where that will begin to kill people in the United States, as it has long been doing in the third world. In other words, if you go to you know, Africa, if you go to the, to the interior of the Horn of Africa or, the, or Sahel, Sub-Saharan Africa, you will find genocide going on, and the high price of oil is a significant part of that genocide. That kind of genocide will then begin to come into the United States. I've just been at the Alex Jones 9-11 uh, conference in, in uh, Los Angeles. I've been at the Chicago 9-11 conference, and one of the things that Alex Jones and some others did in their interventions is to attack Malthusianism, and we'll get to Malthus in just a minute, but the idea is that the genocide you associate with the impoverished areas of the third world will be coming here. That is the idea of peak oil. If you believe in peak oil, if there's a strike, you'll be a strike breaker. You'll say, oh, those workers, they shouldn't get any more money. They'll just consume. Let's cut their wages. Let's, let's send them to the poorhouse. 
if there's a country in the third world that wants to improve its standard of living, then you'll say, smash them. Let's join the Bush administration in bombing Iran. Uh, this is 200 memo back from the early 1970s in which he said, we have to take measures for genocide against third world populations because otherwise those populations will consume our oil, meaning the oil in the world. Now, there's no point in being in politics if you're going to tolerate genocide. Uh, I think the lesson of the Holocaust is simply never again means never again, not to anybody, not to any, um, under any circumstances. So we have to find a way to get out of this stuff without... Uh, so you're for power for the people, all the people. Absolutely. Now, the, the, let's just look into the logic of, of um, peak oil a little bit. This stuff is based on Malthus. Parson Thomas Malthus lived in the first half of the 19th century. He was the main ideologue of the British Empire. And people probably know his idea that the population increases geometrically and food supplies increase arithmetically. World history shows that reality is approximately the opposite of that. And if you have a good economic policy, your food supply can increase geometrically and your population growth will slow down because you'll have people coming into the middle class and they'll, uh, they'll uh, restrict family size compared to a peasant economy. So reality is the reverse of what Malthus says. Malthus, of course, was a charming fellow. He was a member of the Church of England, and his, uh, his argument was to the capitalists. He said, you know, you guys are going to have crises of overproduction. There's never been a crisis of overproduction in the history of, of humanity. But Malthus says that that's what it was, and the reason he said this was his famous argument the church with a capacious maw, that is, a big mouth, is best. What he said was, you capitalists fund guys like me, a totally parasitical class of priests, and we'll make sure that we consume everything you produce so you won't have any crises of overproduction. So that's, well, isn't that a, that's Malthus. A contradiction? Absolutely. It's a complete fraud. I mean, no, he's Malthus saying, is he's not a real thinker. He's completely wrong. He's completely wrong on everything because he's not a serious thinker. Of, He's a fraud. Malthus is a fraud. Malthus is also a plagiarist. This is probably something that I know better than uh, maybe anybody in the world. Malthus was a plagiarist. Everything that Malthus says was derived from an earlier thinker, another kook, if you like, a cultist kook, named Gian Maria Ortes of Venice, O-R-T-E-S. Look him up on the, on the internet. You'll probably find something written by me about it. Ortes, in uh, 1790, invented the concept of carrying capacity. Now, he's coming out of the decadent Venetian Republic about 10 years from the end. He's about 10 years from the moment when Napoleon comes in and flattens Venice and puts an end to this monstrosity that had been tormenting Europe for a couple of centuries. So out of the most decadent oligarchical state in Europe, dominated by the Council of Ten and secret intelligence agencies and a police state like nothing has ever been seen in, in Western Europe up to that point, comes Ortes. And he says that the world is going to have an absolute limit of three billion people. Well, uh, I guess he's a little bit off. We're already at twice that, and we could, we could, I think, uh, uh, accommodate even more if, as long as you have the right technology. And that's the other key: is that based on his copying of Ortiz, Malthus always excludes technological progress. Nowhere in Malthus or in Ortes is their idea that technology can increase the size of the available economic pie. As a matter of fact, Ortes is also the inventor of the so-called zero-sum game, where he says any advance in anybody's standard of living anywhere in the world is paid for by somebody else losing. And this is simply wrong, because actual economic progress implies 
rates of, of real surplus because of the application of technology and science and labor power, which can raise the living standard of the world. Um, the Malthusian universe is a block universe. Uh, you get into the Malthusian universe, everything becomes impossible because you can't use the human mind, you can't use science and technology to solve anything. You're simply doomed to increasing levels of genocide as your, your society collapses. So Malthus is absolutely a, uh, a blind alley. A blind alley indeed. Of course, as listeners to the Corbett Report will remember from episode 17, The Myth of Overpopulation, the ridiculous idea of carrying capacity is part of a broader genocidal eugenics scheme in order to reduce the world population and to make us think that it's a great thing that when people start dying off in mass numbers. And this, of course, ties into the man-made global warming hoax, as evidenced by the likes of Al Gore jumping on board the peak oil theory. Peak oil is just another theory to stop the advance of human civilization and to make sure that the third world countries remain third world and the first world countries turn into third world economies. We have all this to look forward to if the peakniks are right. Now, regardless of the basis of one's belief or disbelief in the peak oil theory, I think a theory that everyone who is against big oil can get behind is that oil is indeed not a sustainable basis for the future of human civilization because it is an easily controllable commodity. The fact that big oil can lie to us about the amount of reserves, control the amount of reserves, and manipulate how much of the reserves get refined obviously makes it a tool of control, no matter whether there's a limitless supply of oil or a very limited r amount of oil left in the world. So what is the real alternative here? If we switch to biofuels, as we've been told, we'll have to reduce the amount of arable land for crops, thus increasing food prices throughout the world and having much the same result as a peak oil scenario would have anyway. Is there any resource in the world that is as abundant as petrochemicals and can provide as much energy? Well, evidently, the answer is yes. Instead of paying almost four bucks for gas, how would you like to run your car on salt water? Now, it may sound crazy, but wait until you see what a local inventor has come up with that could change the world. And as Channel 3's Michael Mara shows us, that's not all he's trying to do. Retired TV station owner and broadcast engineer John Kansas was not looking for an answer to the energy crisis. He was looking for a way to cure cancer. Four years ago, inspiration struck in the middle of the night. Why not use radio waves to kill the cancer cells? And the best thing that would work as antennas was my, that I could find at 3 o'clock in the morning, was my wife's pie pants. His wife, Marianne, heard the noise and found her husband inventing a radio frequency generator using her pie pans. I got up immediately and thought he'd lost it. Here are the basics of John's idea. Radio waves will heat certain metals like gold. Tiny bits of that metal are injected into a cancer patient. Those nanoparticles are attracted to the abnormalities of the cancer cell and ignore the healthy cells. The patient is then exposed to radio waves and only the bad cells heat up and die. Killing cancer cells is amazing, but John had also stumbled on yet another amazing breakthrough. You have enough in there? His machine could actually burn salt water. John Kansas discovered that his radio frequency generator could release the oxygen and hydrogen from salt water and create an incredibly intense flame. Just like that. If that was inside a car cylinder, you could see the amount of fire that would be in the cylinder. 
I can put my hand in here. Put your hand into the beam, nothing happens. Put in a fluorescent bulb and it lights up immediately. At the APV Company Laboratory in Akron, top engineers have checked out John's amazing invention and they were amazed. And we saw it go up to 1500 degrees centigrade, the temperature. And it, it's, it's incredible. This simple Stirling engine is running with the heat generated by the flames coming off that test tube. The fuel, nothing more than salt water. Oh, that could be a steam engine, uh, a steam turbine. Could be a car engine if you wanted it to be. That's the true American innovator. Someone that is not looking for something, he just finds it. This is uh, the most abundant uh, element uh, in the world, water. And salt water is everywhere. Uh, and to see it burn, uh, actually gives me chills. So imagine the possibilities. Salt water as the ultimate clean fuel. A happy byproduct of one man searching for a cure for cancer. In Erie, Pennsylvania, Michael Mera, Channel 3 News. That is amazing. We want it now. <laughs> yes, you heard that report correctly. Salt water burned as fuel. I wonder why you haven't heard this followed up on in the mainstream media. In conclusion, I only ask that you do your own research into this topic. The more I research, the more I'm convinced that peak oil is indeed a fraud. And another article that might be useful in your research in this regard is called No Peaking, an excerpt from Armed Madhouse, a book by renowned journalist Greg Pallast, who originally broke the 2000 vote fraud story of the Bush election. And I would also say that just like the man-made global warming hoax, even if you believe in the peak oil theory, you have to believe that the proposed medicine is much worse than the cure itself. Stopping the development of human civilization only seeks to benefit those rich, wealthy elite who, like the opening clip in today's episode demonstrate, want a world in which only they have the privilege to use automobiles or to fly in airplanes. Do you want your grandchildren to have the privilege of using these technologies which we take for granted? If the answer is yes, then you can do your own research into the matter, come to your own conclusions, and see if there is a possibility for human civilization to continue. This is the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett. Thank you for joining me. Join me again next week for another episode. That is amazing. We want it now. <laughs>